Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Matthew 5, and I'm going to go ahead and pray as we get started today. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we pray, God, as we open it and study it together, that you would give us revelation and wisdom and knowledge in your will, that we would know what to do, how to do it, and we would have the grace to follow through with it. I thank you for everybody that's joining us online today, and I pray, God, that you would bless them, strengthen them. Fill us, Lord, with the Holy Spirit, and I pray, God, that this moment that we share together right now would just unfold so many things that you desire to do through our lives today. We ask for your discernment. We pray for divine encounters, divine appointments today, that we could serve you by loving people. We look forward to what you're going to do, and we pray that you would bless our time in your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We, are, we were looking more at the Old Testament, and as I was studying the book of Samuel, it just, um, I just felt more drawn to Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew this time, and so I want to probably just go through the book of Matthew with you together, and I'll probably Old Testament, New Testament as we continue with the daily word. I wanted to make one uh, mention. I have changed the daily word from Monday to Friday. We'll now be doing Wednesday through Friday, and the reason for that is simply because I'm going to take days off, and so that's a healthy thing. Sabbath is really important, having rest, and uh, and I'm just somebody who continues to share no matter what, and in this season, we're just trying to find new rhythms and routines, so you can expect Wednesday through Friday instead of Monday through Friday. I might do occasional just fun uploads on Monday and Tuesday because I can't help myself, but that's that. Just so you know, next week, it'll be Wednesday through Friday. As we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, we're opening up to the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to go ahead and just read uh, verses 1 through 12. And uh, that's probably how far we'll get today. But let's go ahead and read that together. Here's what it says. Verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not just say bad things about you, but because you're a follower of Christ. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's go ahead and keep reading here. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light 
shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We just want to go ahead and look at some of these verses because, listen, Matthew chapter 5 is just packed, and I only read half of it, if that. We know that when we enter into the book of Matthew, we've already read about Jesus' genealogy. We've already read about the calling of John the Baptist, who was going to prepare the way for the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We already read about when Jesus was baptized and the Spirit of God was poured out upon him. The heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit came upon him, rested upon him, empowered him for ministry. We read about the temptations of Jesus, where the devil came to Jesus, tempted him in three different ways, and how Jesus resisted. He reflected back on what we read in Deuteronomy. And that's so important, as we studied that actually yesterday. And Jesus began his ministry, and the thing that we didn't read is that he chose his disciples. In Matthew chapter 5, we enter in with that assumption. We didn't read about it yesterday, but we know this in Matthew chapter 4, that Jesus had chosen his disciples, so he has 12 of them now. It says in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5 that he basically goes up on the mountainside, which in Israel, if you haven't been, you should go. We're hoping to go here in 2021, depending on this pandemic and how it all pans out. We have a waiting list. If you're interested in going to Israel with us, you can always email me and get on the list. You don't have to put any money down. We're going to figure everything out in September. But you'll see in Israel, they're not like mountains. They're more like hills. But the word mountain is used here. So Jesus sits down like a typical rabbi would do. And it says that his disciples come to him. And I can imagine them all sitting down here on the hill. And Jesus begins to teach them. And what we tend to believe and scholars tend to think is more disciples or more were there that were gathered. We don't know who they were are or how many there were. People debate funny things like that. But we know there were many onlookers, observers, listeners, people that were listening to the teaching of Jesus. And in this moment, Matthew chapter 5, as the Sermon on the Mount begins, Jesus is giving like a, you know, the King Jesus inaugural address. And he's talking about the way of the kingdom. He's talking about kingdom character. And remember, the backdrop of this, or the contrast, is that the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and really how they had been stewarding Judaism and all of the system that had been set up by the law, their interpretation of it, the way that they were stewarding the ministry that God had given to them through the Old Covenant, is the contrast for what Jesus is teaching. Not only is Jesus teaching in a new covenant, Not only is Jesus fulfilling aspects of the Old Covenant, but he's also sharing about how there were misinterpretations, and he's he's helping the distorted view come into full focus. Like, what is the heart of God really about? What is the heart of God even in the law? Because we know that that had been distorted. Isn't that what we do, though? And we can easily judge those that were in that generation and that culture. We can judge the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, But we ought to do so in understanding who we all are as human beings. We can take what God has said and we can distort it for our own gain. 
I've done that, you've done that. Um, So let's call a spade a spade. Human beings have a way of taking what God has done and said and making it out for their own advantage. And we read about that in the Bible, but we see that in the mirror. And so we gotta be careful how far we go to judge others. But that is the contrast and the backdrop is Jesus is teaching about kingdom ethics. Jesus is teaching about kingdom character. He's teaching about his way. It's not just how I want you to be or how I I want you to do. It's he's just showing like this is the way of God. And he actually displayed that and demonstrated that in the way that he lived. And he puts these things into like bite-sized pieces that are categorically important for all of us as citizens of God's kingdom. We know that the book of Matthew is broken up into five discourses and the Sermon on the Mount is the first. But in case you're wondering, there are actually four others. We read about the commissioning of the 12 in Matthew chapter 10, the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. We read about uh, church life and discipline, Matthew chapter 18, and the Olivet Discourse, of course, which is in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. The Sermon on the Mount is so important. Some people say that it's it's actually the most important sermons or sermonettes that Jesus ever taught. I think everything is as important that Jesus taught. But this actually is so power-packed, and we want to break down some of that, which I have written down some notes and observations that I've made. I've taught on the Sermon on the Mount several times. I've taught on the Beatitudes, which is what we call these. And there are nine Beatitudes. Sometimes we say there are eight, but I actually believe there are nine because the final one that we read about here in verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, I think that can be included as well. And so let's just jump right into the Beatitudes. I want to just start by saying each one of them says blessed, and then it goes on to say what that thing is. Blessed are those who are dot, dot, dot. And then it gives them a promise. So blessed are the people who are like this, and this is what they will receive as a result of it. And so we want to, we want to understand that there's a character that's pointed to, or there's a disposition, an attitude that's pointed to, and that we are blessed. And that doesn't just mean happy. That means far more than just that. The word blessed means ultimate well-being, Uh, distinctive spiritual joy. It means a lot more than happy, especially in the context of how we say happy or understand happiness today. It's talking about having this ultimate well-being in ourselves that only God can satisfy, that only God can bring. It's in line with the shalom of God. It's not, doesn't mean the same thing, but shalom means more than peace. It's talking about that, that deep, that, that deep inner satisfying that only God can bring. And that's what really Jesus is talking about. And there's nine of these. We'll probably only share about six of them. Uh, but we want to know that Jesus is emphasizing this for a reason. And so the first one is in verse 3. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's another translation that says, blessed are those who know their need. And I believe what he's talking about here is... He's talking about people who understand their spiritual condition before God, that they are bankrupt. Let's just put it like this. They're in need of God, that in and of themselves, it's not enough, that they understand they're they're poor in spirit, that God is the one who has and we're the ones who don't have. People who are aware. I'm not talking about people who are live with an inferiority complex. I'm a horrible person. I suck. 
woe is me. That's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about people that have this profound awareness that we, without God, we don't have what we need, that we are not going to be what we are called to be. And we read about this actually in our understanding of the gospel. Paul would further illustrate this and share about this later in the book of Romans when he would say like, all of our righteousness is filthy rags. Now that's just kind of a dramatic thing. Filthy rags were He's kind of giving an illustration or a picture, maybe a metaphor of, of rags that are used. You can imagine like a blacksmith, somebody that's working day in and day, day out with metal, uh, hammering the metal into swords or plows, and they have these rags and they're, they're so filthy and dirty at the end of the day, end of a workday, and he's saying, that's what our righteousness is like. It's like the filthy rags at the end of a workday. That's our best day. And it's not about saying how bad we are, it's about recognizing where we are and what we need from God. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. This is that awareness. Are we aware? And as saved people, as Christ followers, as Christians, are we aware today, still, right now, that we continue to live in a posture and a position of need for God? You know, just because we have the Holy Spirit, just because we have the Word of God, just because we're followers of Jesus, does not mean that that we're not dependent on him. In fact, what it does mean is we are dependent on him. We come to Christ because we need a savior. We come to Christ because he paid for our lives. We come to Christ because he's, he's, he's alive. We come to Christ because he's real, because this is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. We, we come to Christ, but we stay close to Christ because nothing changes in that as we come to him, so we remain in him with that same disposition, disposition, that same posture, that we're not now autonomous, that we no longer need because we already have. It's a vital connection, and we need not forget that and understand what this means. And so he goes on to saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom citizens, and they inherit this. And he goes on to say in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this speaks of, of two things, in my opinion. It speaks of mourning over our own personal sin, but it also speaks of mourning over the sin of our people and of our surroundings, of our community. This is both personal and corporate. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, Paul talks about how godly sorrow leads us to repentance. There's a massive difference between godly sorrow and regret. Regret just makes us feel bad. I shouldn't have done that. I really wish I didn't do that. Sometimes we have this regret because we think more highly of ourselves. We think that uh, I knew better, so I should have done better. And we don't realize that we actually need the Spirit of Christ to live the life of Christ. And so we often have this regret because we have high expectations of ourselves that we fall short on, and we don't live this life of dependence before God. We live a life of self-sufficiency, and we let ourselves down, and we have regret. Paul's talking about godly sorrow. I believe those who mourn, we're not mourning in a way we're, we're in sackcloth and ashes. We just feel bad about ourselves. We just understand that we live before God. We understand that that who God is and who we are as kingdom citizens, it's not the same as just regret. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance. And in repentance, we find his healing. We find his restoration. We find that God ministers to our soul. He doesn't leave us in that condition. God doesn't want us to live in perpetual sackcloth and ashes. 
Repentance or living a life of repentance is not where we constantly look down on ourselves, feel bad, feel horrible. It's where we look up. Repentance is where we constantly look up, where we continue to give God our today and our tomorrow. It's not about our past. Repentance is always about our future. It's always about our dependence. It's always about looking unto Him. The Bible is not trying to give us a standard that we can never achieve. The Bible is showing us who we are. The Bible is is both a mirror to where we are, and it's also a future trajectory of where God calls us, what He created us for. And so there's no point of just feeling horrible all the time. It's seeing what the Bible says and drawing into it as a promise from God that he himself has committed his power to making us who he's called us to be. And this is the way that I look at repentance. It's that we got to stop looking in the past. We receive his forgiveness today. We receive his encouragement today. And we draw ourselves into the work of Christ and who he is for us and what he's done on our behalf. And we find that mourning Um, is a place of repentance before God, and it causes us to grow. It causes us to give ourselves more over to Him. I would also tell you, though, blessed are those who mourn has a lot to do with corporate mourning. We mourn not just over the sin of our own lives, but also of our community. And this is where we could talk about the sins of racism. We could talk about the sins of injustice. We could talk about the sins of immorality. We could talk about the sins of, of murder. And so we, we have, there, depending on where you come from or how you see this, but today we're dealing with all kinds of racism that's in the public eye. We've had many um, young black men and women that have been recently murdered or killed or however that, a lot of different things that have happened, but th- that's been in the news lately. And so are we mourning over this? A lot of people are debating over whether or not it was racist. I don't think we need to debate so much over that. I think we need to mourn the loss. Like, blessed are those who mourn. We mourn the injustice in our land. This is not political. It's that we see people that are treated unfairly, regardless of the purpose or the reason. You know, these things still exist, and they will exist until Jesus returns. Jesus is the only one that's going to lead us into perfect peace. Jesus is the only one that's going to lead us into that unity and that harmony that we all desire. But the question is, do we long for it? So much so that we see the oppression around us and it brings out this longing in our hearts, not this political position. See, sometimes people have this view of me where they say, you're not very political. And the reality is, is that I'm as political as I think I need to be according to scripture. But my mandate is this book. And this book calls me to live in a place of mourning for my community. So I mourn when there's murder. I mourn when people choose abortion. I mourn when there's racism that exists, regardless on what level and with whom it exists. I mourn that. Whenever I hear of it, I don't draw myself into a political debate. I ask God to give mercy to our land. I pray that God would break the bonds of injustice. I pray that God would shatter the oppression that is over people, regardless of what people group that is. I step into that place, and we ought to do that. As Christ followers, we understand that Jesus died for sin, He died to eradicate the bondage of sin that we wrap ourselves with and we debate over and we fight over. I don't really know the political position of everyone. I don't know who's trying to derive an agenda from what or whatnot, but I do know that people have been murdered recently. I know that lives have been lost. I know that injustice is running rampant in our land, and I mourn over that. And if you don't, if we don't, we need to ask God 
to have that mournful spirit that we are before God, realizing this is not the way it's supposed to be. Blessed are those who mourn, not just for our personal, our personal sin, but for the sin of others. This is what we call identificational repentance. This is what Daniel did on behalf of Israel when he opened up the writings and they were 70 years, the children of Israel in Babylon. And Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah and he recognized that 70 years had passed and they were under judgment because God judged them as a result of their iniquity. And Daniel was a part of that generation that went into Babylon. And as he's reading from the prophet Jeremiah, it just dawns on him, we're in that 70th year and it's time to repent. And so he kickstarts his repentance. He repents over his people. He repents over his own nation, which is literally in a place of judgment as a result of their own behavior, their own activity, their own disobedience before God. He doesn't talk about how he is. He doesn't make it personal. He just repents on behalf of Israel. I think we need to understand identificational repentance. That if we are a people, if you're an American and you say, I want America to go back to God, then we need to repent on behalf of our land. And that's so valuable and so important before God because we're taking responsibility as human beings that we all have participated in iniquity. We all have participated in sin. We all are connected in, in our humanity and we need to advocate righteousness through the gospel of Jesus and what we have received, we desire that very thing to be given to the community around us. And it starts with this ache in our hearts of what is wrong. Not only in ourselves, it does start there, but also in our community. Oh God, we pray on behalf of those that have committed murder, those that have been murdered, those that are committing abortion, those that are committing the sin of racism. Oh God, we pray, whoever they are, wherever they are, that Lord, you would bring conviction, you would break oppression. But Lord, also for the victim and the victim's families, but also for the oppressors, shadow the shackles, shatter the shackles of the oppressor that the oppressors could get free that they would turn their hearts to you. That's, that's the scandalous grace of God, is that the Lord is reaching out to both the oppressed and the oppressor, not the enemy, but the enemy is trying to manipulate human beings into turning against each other. And when we contend for the oppressed and the oppressor, that's what Jesus did. When Jesus was on the cross, that's exactly what he was doing. The devil was the one trying to manipulate human beings trying to speak lies into human beings to get us to turn against each other. But when you and I mourn over the iniquity of our land and we enter into identificational repentance, that's what it means, in my opinion. Blessed are those who mourn. Do we mourn? Do we feel the ache of our land? Because when we do, we start to feel the heart of God. We start to feel what Jesus felt when he went to the cross. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. We didn't clean our act up and say, here, we presented some, some piece of gold to God. We all presented filthy rags to God, and he looked at that, and there was no payment in any of it from those that were oppressing others and those that were being oppressed. He gave his life for both, and he bids all to come. And so we enter into that ache that Jesus had on the cross, and we feel a little bit of that as we mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. We enter into something of God, and we sense that very thing that put Jesus on the cross that he was willing to go through on our behalf? Are we willing to go through that in our own world? Are we willing to feel what God feels? Are we willing to ask for God to give us that very sense for our own community? How are the shackles of our community going to be broken? I believe that Jesus gives us this view in the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches us his way. His kingdom way is 
it, it, it's just upside down compared to how it is out here. You know, out here you take a stand. You know, that's what, that's what our world is like. Our politics are that way. Our, our society is that way. Everybody has a different view. Everybody has a different opinion. Everybody fights for their side. But when Jesus came, he didn't come and fight for anybody's side. He came and died for human beings to be rightly related and connected to God through his death, burial, and resurrection, that he spilt his own blood. He gave his own life willingly for those that didn't deserve it and couldn't earn it. He stepped into the debates and the fights and the iniquity and the sin, the generational sin, the polarization, and he just gave himself for both, that both, whomever would believe upon him, that would receive life in his name. You and I are called in a polarizing world to mourn over the oppressor and the oppressed and somehow pray that injustice would be shattered by God himself. And at the same time, we understand that part of how that happens is that those who are the initiators of injustice would have a change of heart. And I know this is probably deeper than we could get into today, and I realize that, but that's the tension that we live in. The tension is, is that as soon as we break the shackles of injustice over one issue, another one crops up. Why? Because men and women's hearts are corrupt. And until our hearts are transformed by the love and the power of Jesus, injustice will continue to just prevail in our land. And so what is our answer to that? We are gospel advocates. What is our answer to that? We have a kingdom lifestyle with a kingdom character. Blessed are those who mourn. What does he say? For they shall be comforted. The only comfort that we will receive is that God is moving, God is at work, God is transforming lives, and there is a day that is coming where he will make all wrong things right. That's the king that we follow. We also see here, and I'll just stop here, blessed are the meek, and sometimes people will translate this as blessed are the gentle. We're talking about power under control. Sometimes people will give the illustration or the metaphor of a horse. A horse is so powerful, and yet it can be bridled and under control. This comes from Psalm 37, 11, where it says the humble will inherit the earth. Humble people are not just pious and weak and, and uh, sort of present themselves as inferior. Humble people are those that know how to restrain themselves. Humble people are those that are not always trying to be right or the smartest person in the room. They're people that are advocating for righteousness. They're people that understand the greater point. They're people that are willing to close their mouth to get to the, to, to the greater things while everyone else can fight. These are humble people that are showing away as much as they are sharing their words. They're, they're people that exercise that self-control that comes from the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it, Jesus even said about these, they will inherit the earth. They're not people that just never say anything. They're not people that put themselves, that kind of have this pious sort of like, um, I'm not very important and I don't want anybody to see me type of person. Humble people, they know God and they know that God is at work. They understand that God is doing things even though on the outside everything is going crazy and they're not allowing what is on the outside to control what is on the inside of them. I mean, he goes on to say, they'll inherit the earth. I, I, I believe that this is such a, uh, it's not just an attitude, it's a disposition toward God, that we honor what God is doing. We honor what God is capable of, able to do, how God is at work. Humble people are not just humble because they're passive. They're humble because they know something greater is going on. They, they, they're trusting in the promises of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how we can be humble.
we can be humble when somebody comes at us and they just got all of this rhetoric and all of this stuff and you ought to be this and you ought to do that and you're not enough and blah, blah, blah. They could say all of that stuff and we can sit there and we can take it because we know that whatever is on the outside does not dictate maybe what's going on on the inside. Sometimes people manifest all of this stuff out of their mouth and in their disposition and with their life because they're just processing things. And we don't usually have enough grace for each other to do that. People can change their minds. People can emotionally respond. People get angry right away and they can enter into through prayer or maybe even just through calming down. They can enter into a place where they can also listen. But humble people, they can allow others just to be where they are because ultimately they know what the truth is. Ultimately, they know how powerful the Spirit of God is. Ultimately, they know what's at stake. They know what's going on. They know where this is going. We can be humble because of what we know. We can be humble because we have His Word. We we can be humble because God's the one that really commits His own power to seeing things happen. And we just want to get out there and we want to break out of our humility and we want to just be forceful and coercive and manipulative and all of that. None of that works. None of that works. That's not authority. That's not leadership. That's not helping anybody. But humility is showing a way and it's the way of God's kingdom. And you know what? As we close today and as we pray over the Beatitudes, these are attitudes that, that not we just want to have. We want to have this disposition towards God. We want to be people that have these attitudes that are not just personal, but they're corporate, where we understand that God is at work. And we're, we're asking that God would set our hearts in such a way where we're really God's first. I just think we spend far too much time trying to be right, trying to be the person with the greatest argument, trying to be the person that has so much to say, when in reality, we need to display the works of the kingdom, the character of the kingdom, and really just share the life of the kingdom. And as we do that, things would get reconciled. I mean, who would have ever thought in Je- Jesus's generation that Jesus dying on a cross was going to bring about the righteousness that it did, that it would bring about the transformation that it did? That was God's plan. God's plan was, I'm going to give my son to die for the sins of the world. And they've got nothing to offer me but filthy rags. Can we be people like Jesus that realize when we give our lives away, as we display kingdom character, as we humble ourselves and we don't, we're in the world, but we're not of it. We're not cut from the same cloth anymore because the spirit of God dwells in us and he's trying to lead us. But isn't it so easy to be led by the flesh? See, if we realize that Jesus had a countercultural way and we follow that way and we do our best to follow what scripture says, that's what I'm trying to do in these days right now. I constantly am asking myself because I'm feeling all the time. I could just be honest with you. I'm always feeling like I wanna react and I wanna respond. You know, maybe I should be farther down the road than I am, but I constantly feel the flesh tugging me every day. Every day I felt the flesh wanting to just take a stand. And and I'm a black and white person, so you know what? For me, it's actually easier to enter into that, that kind of mentality, that kind of mindset, that triumphant mentality. It's easier for me to do that because that's actually more of my nature. What's harder for me, what requires more faith from me, is to trust God in the midst of displaying kingdom character over the long haul. Trust me, that requires a lot more faith than just taking a stand and just being militant about my position. It takes way more faith. It takes way more humility, way more kingdom character. And I feel the flesh die. I start to feel something in me die. Like that's, and it's good to feel that. Like, ah. And and when we humble ourselves, we notice that God can use us 
a whole lot more than when we just rise up. People say, rise up, rise up. I don't know what people mean all the time when they say that. What do you mean rise up? Rise up in the flesh or rise up in the spirit? Rise up in prayer, identificational repentance. We rise up with the gospel, be an advocate for others. Ask God to break the shackles of oppression and injustice. What, what are we talking about? See, I don't always know, but when I read this and Jesus shows his way and his kingdom and his character and what he's about, I certainly see that that requires a whole lot more than me rising up. It requires me actually humbling myself to God and saying, Lord, you can and I can't. Help me. And so blessed are those who, who are poor in spirit. Today, are you and I poor in spirit? Do we know our need before God? This is a moment in time where I can tell you I've had to recognize daily how much I need God. We, we need God. And I just feel like, man, we've, we've got to get to the place where we're humble again, where we realize, Lord, we need you. Like revival's not going to come because we take this thing by force. It's going to come because we humble ourselves in prayer. It's going to come with this radical unity. It's going to come with this countercultural behavior and activity. It's going to come when the church actually looks more and more like the first century church, the ones that directly saw Jesus' life. We've got to get back to looking at him as our example. He's got to be, his word and his way has got to be our example in the days that we're living in. I know you know that. I know that. But I'm coming to terms with what that means because sometimes the flesh just speaks loud, doesn't it? Well, today, why don't we do this as we close? Let's pray that God would teach us his way of humility and not some uh, version of it, but that he would teach us his way. And whatever that means, we just give him the right to lead us. We do that every day and we repent from any lesser way or lesser version. We need God and we need him more now than ever probably in our, in our lifetime because he's leading us into places we've never been before to do things that we probably have never done before. And when we acknowledge that, we realize exactly how much we need them. The territory is unchartered, it's unknown, but God is leading us. And that is exciting and that we can trust. So let's pray today. Join me, if you would, right where you are. Father, we thank you for your way. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your example. Lord, We I just admit that I don't live the way that you did. There's so many times where I lead and live by the flesh and I just give that over to you today. We do too as a people, as a church. We just ask you, Lord, to, to, to take our lives, to take our mind and to take our heart and show us, show us what it would look like for us to follow you in the days that we're living in. There's so many voices of influence, Lord. There's so many people saying this and that. And God, I, some of it has truth to it. But ultimately, Lord, we, if we don't have you leading us, then we're just trying to find our way like, like the blind leading the blind. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us see. Help us, Lord, to mourn for the sin and the iniquity in our own lives, but also in our community. Help us to feel what you feel. Help us to see what you see. Help us to live how you would live in this world. Lead us, we pray. You're our leader. You're our pastor. Your word is our guide. We yield and submit our hearts to you today, and we thank you, God, that you, you have given us all that we need today. We praise you and we worship you in Jesus' mighty name. And God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.